I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a special edition of Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. When writers come to the Fitzgerald Theater for Talking Volumes, it's a more intimate experience for people who love books. Writers can see the eager faces of the audience, and most of them respond to the energy and the appreciation in the room. So today, three Minnesota writers on the Talking Volumes stage. First, here's an excerpt from my conversation with singer-songwriter and memoirist Dessa from 2018 and her book, My Own Devices. As you know, Dessa is on stage a lot, but she was surprisingly uncomfortable being in the spotlight that night. This definitely feels like being in the back seat of your own car, or maybe in the trunk of your own car. Yeah, (laughs) it's a little uncomfortable. Please blink. Wait a minute, the trunk of your own car. (laughs) It's like, I can't get out, I'm trapped. That's how this feels? There's less control than she's accustomed to. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One of the things that strikes me about memoir and personal essays is the decision about what isn't said is, I think, every bit as important, especially as a first-time memoirist, Mm -hmm. as what you decide to put on the page. And I'd be interested in knowing how you calibrated what to tell and what you wouldn't tell. I think on the first draft of the whole book, I was more interested in, like, I feel like I had to prove I could really write. So I was writing and writing and trying to come up with, you know, awesome figurative language and, and clever turns of phrase. And I submitted that to my editor, Maya, at Dutton. And she was like, you can really write. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, you know, how did you feel during that moment? Or like, what did you tell your mom? Um, so as the drafts progressed, so did the level of, of intimacy yeah, that I shared. I was so afraid of being maudlin that I think at first I was overcompensating, you know, really trying to keep a, a clinical distance from some of the most intimate moments of my life. Uh, you have experience with this, though. I mean, you know, when you're writing lyrics or you're writing music, you are making decisions about what may be in the breath that you're not saying or what's being held back in the lyric. Does this feel that different? Yes. It does. <laughs> it does. Why? I think, I think in the span of like a three and a half minute pop song, let's say, or a rap song, um, you can create a really cool and compelling world without having to fill in the details necessarily. Figurative language works really well in choruses and in verses and in bridges. You know, you can... As long as it sounds good, you've got a, you're coming from an honest place and it's well-crafted, you, you don't actually have to be like, it was midnight, I was at Walgreens. You don't have to share the details that are so humbling. You can kind of do it in these broader strokes, you know? It's like, it's like the photo without the filter. You know? What I feel like you mastered, though, in this is something... Roseanne Cash has talked about, which is the direct vision and the peripheral vision. And often the peripheral vision is more interesting than the direct coming at the idea or coming at the experience from the side Mm. and straight on. What? Yeah. I mean, I think in beginning to write, I started with the premise that other than like my closest friends, like your biggest moments and your biggest wins and your biggest, most disappointing failures are not actually 
actually that interesting to strangers. They're just not. Why? Why do you think that is? Because if I said, like, you know, Billy Joe and Kellyanne, they just got divorced. Your next question is, who's Billy Joe and Kellyanne? I don't care. You know, I don't know those people. People get divorced all the time. But in their lives, that's like, that's, that's the big tragedy of this 10 years for them. You know, it's not until you've already become invested in someone that their trials, tribulations, or successes would be of any interest to you at all. Mm-hmm. So for me, it feels like to earn the attention and the investment of a reader or a listener, um, you've got to present yourself as as either skilled enough as a craftsperson or relatable enough or likable enough for anyone to want to attend to the events of your personal experience. I mean, you also have to decide what this meant, I guess, in the moment. And then that's the peripheral side of this, right? Coming back around to say, now how do I understand what this meant? And does it mean what I thought it meant or now that I've got more experience this is how I see that mm-hmm. also it's like okay here was my experience at Walgreens at midnight in some personal throws in some big deep sad moment of my life I think the big the question for me as a human being might be what does this say about my life but the more interesting question is what does it say about to be alive the only portal to human life that I have is my own experience but I'm hoping to use that small data set to answer bigger questions. You know, I'd like to know, and I've always wanted to know, I think, what's it like to be a guy? What would it be like to be black? What would it like to be a black guy in India? I mean, the truth of the world is not this. This is a very strange human way that we're living uh, right now in, in St. Paul. Live, no, I mean, like living comfortably, most of us. Most of us. We're in a, in a beautiful theater we're safe from the rain outside that the microphones may or may not be picking up. This is a weird way to live. This is, we have it so good that it's alienating probably for the rest of the human community. You know? So when you say, when you, when Carrie, when you talk about coming at it sideways, I think sometimes, even if I'm like talking about a breakup, I'm tempted to use a lens that feels a little more universal. Like what does science say about this? Sometimes that's a technique to be able to step back and not put, what you felt down on the page. Oh, sure. Yeah, like I'm distancing. Yeah, oh, definitely. Right. <laughs> Guilty, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Right. <laughs> but also, I think, to me, in some way, because I feel like there's something on the other side of the seesaw, which is this intellectual stuff, right? Talking about science and brain anatomy. I feel like that gives me license to go further into feelings without feeling as though perhaps I've crossed the threshold into sentimentalism because I've got a rope tied around my waist. And on the other side of that rope, we are assured is still a thinking intellectual person who's not going to just veer off into her feelings without a mindful understanding of, of the fact that like people are, are reading with her and... Um, I'm totally... It's ellipsis. You're right. It's sort of a defense mechanism. Um, I have to say... (laughs) So, this might surprise you. I, for the science sake, and we'll explain a little bit more about this in a minute, I found the science, just from that standpoint, interesting. But that isn't when I felt like I knew you. Even though you were discovering things about yourself... I knew you in the mundane, in the midnight at Walgreens, in the moments where you were showing me the stuff that seems ordinary. Mm. And 
and and that mo- those moments of self discovery from that. You're smiling about this. Why? Because I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Why? In this moment, or because just in general? Because I feel like you're doing that thing when a shark moves really slowly <laughs> before. Yeah. Wait, I'm doing what thing? I don't want to get hypnotized and not be ready to (laughs) defend myself. (laughs) You're falling under my spell. Yeah, I know. Right. But what about that? Um, (laughs) I think, uh, I think, I think. I'm still trying to think. Okay, if you ask someone to listen to a song, it's three and a half minutes. That's a much smaller ask than reading a whole book, just time-wise, you know? So for me, it was to try to figure out how much value can I pile in, whether that value is humor or a relatable experience. Or sometimes, and I, I did occasionally kind of have to argue for this when talking to my editor, I think it's cool just to put fascinating pieces of information in a memoir or a fiction, and have them be there because they're fascinating. But like what? Um, okay, so in one section, I'm talking to my brother, and he and I both just like factoids. Um, and so things like, you know that little piece of, of plastic at the end of a shoelace? That's called an aglet. The hashtag is called an octothorpe. Uh, ZIP is actually an acronym, like zip code for a zone improvement plan. Like, that's all tight. And so I want to write it in my book. <laughs> and that made it in the book. <laughs> he, I, I like what you say about being an artist. You write, part of the challenge in becoming an artist is that you have to place your bets before you're fully dealt. That's so well said. You have to assess your talent, still half-formed, and decide what you're willing to stake on it. And I would I guess I would add to that, tell me whether this is true, that you also have to have the fortitude in the face of self-doubt, external doubt, to say, I place that bet on my talent, and I believe in it, and you're going to have a hard time shaking me off of that. So I want to know what that's like. Well, it depending on the adjectives, no, depending on the nouns and the verbs you use, that either sounds like a brave defiant stand, or it sounds like intolerable vanity. Um, After you've made it and you get to sit on the Fitzgerald stage, it sounds brave. But when you're talking to your parents over Thanksgiving dinner (laughs) and you're 27 years old and you never, never did go to grad school, you know, like don't really have a career plan other than trying to make this music thing work. um, They're not like, wow, God, that's brave. (laughs) That's Dessa on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. Steph Curtis with me this morning. Steph, this is why I say these conversations are, even though they're with writers and they're about books, they're about so much more, right? Life and this gnarly way that we're living and ideas. And yeah, it's great to hear Dessa on the stage of the Fitz, it is. isn't it? It is. And it's our fall member drive here. In case you're wondering why I am joining Carrie Miller and we need to hear from you, you, we're asking you to support the insightful, the thoughtful conversations. And there's something that Carrie said there about like the difference between direct and peripheral. We're not being peripheral. (laughs) We're being direct here. We need you to become a member today. It's really easy to do. Go to mprnews.org or give us a call at one 800 
227-2811. We need to hear from 750 new or renewing members today. We've heard from 214 members so far. That's good. But we need to keep those numbers coming. Yeah, I I was on with uh, Kathy Worser this morning. We got things off to a start, but the goal remains the goal, and you're a key part of that. You're listening. Maybe you're a big reader. Maybe every now and then you dip in and think, hey, I wonder what NPR is talking about when it comes to books. I wonder what Carrie's reading. For serious readers and also for people that just, hey, I love to, I want to know what's what's out there and what I should yeah. be thinking about when it comes to books. This show is for you, and we hope that you'll make a commitment on Minnesota Public Radio to say, yeah, more books, more <laughs> reading, more big ideas. 800-227-2811. If you're listening online, it's a hop, skip, and a jump right over to mprnews.org. And then you are good to go, and you've made a commitment to Minnesota Public Radio, and we thank you for that. How many people to go, Steph? Have you got the number We've got in 214 members so far. Okay. 750 is the total. I can't do the math do that the quickly. Math. I can't. Do, everyone else needs to do the math themselves out okay. there. Okay, it's but a passel. No what, it's a passel of listeners. <laughs> a passel right? of listeners, and we we'd need. like you to be one of them. Um, this member drive, I love this thank you gift. You know, we we have thank you gifts. We've got these great new T-shirts. We've got some great new tote bags. You can go look at them at mprnews.org. But this member drive, we also have this partnership with the Future Forest mm-hmm. Fund. So we're partnering with them to regrow precious landscapes around Minnesota. And so if you donate. $5 a month, there'll be five trees planted in a state forest in Minnesota. $10 a month, you can choose 10 trees. Fifty, You can see where I'm going with this. $20 a month, 20 trees, you know, on and on. Even $100 a month, yeah. 100 trees planted. Pay it forward today to keep Minnesota's forests thriving for years. Pay it forward today to keep NPR News thriving for years. Go to mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. You know, with this partnership with the DNR's Future Forest, we are seeding, we, NPR listeners, and the rest of the people in Minnesota who want to keep Minnesota green and verdant, we're seeding the landscape for future generations. Well, that's exactly what you're doing when you make a commitment to Minnesota Public Radio. You are ensuring that Minnesota Public Radio will be here for the next 50 years, but you're also investing in the news and information that you hear every day. And I submit to you that you can hear that. You make an investment, you can hear the expression of that coming out of the radio, seeing it online, mprnews.org, 800-227-2811. On a day when on my book show, we are focused on Minnesota writers on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater for talking volumes. I mean, that's what it's all about. Who knows what's going to happen on the stage, Steph? You've been there (laughs) on nights when things get a little crazy and unexpected, right? Crazy and unexpected, or you somebody who's written a dead serious book and they Mm. are frothy and fun and thoughtful (laughs) and insightful, but also just hysterical on stage. I just love (laughs) those um, live events that we have, and they're made possible by people just like you. This radio program is made possible by listeners who became members. We're hoping that you will join 749 other people today to help us meet this goal. New members, renewing members, just $5 a month would be really appreciated. Call us right now, 1-800-227-2811, or you can go to mprnews.com. 
org and contribute. Thanks to everyone who's contributed so far today, but we'd really like to hear from you. Minnesota Public Radio is rooted in fact and rooted in community. In fact, 76% of NPR's funding comes from public support. Donations from thousands of listeners allow us to get to the root of important issues for you, for your community. This election season, you can help NPR continue to be more than a source, but a resource for everyone in our community. Make your gift during our fall member drive to power this work. Give now at nprnews.org. Now back to our special Friday book show and three Minnesota writers who have appeared at Talking Volumes. In 2021, William Kent Kruger was our season finale guest, and the fits was filled with his appreciative fans. We talked about the endurance of a character, Cork O'Connor, he created two decades ago, and why he was ready to reveal more about Cork's childhood. You know, I've, uh, I've lived with Cork for so long that who he is as a man, um, I know quite well, although I'm always discovering new and interesting sides to Cork that I wasn't aware of. But um, it was easy for me to imagine Cork as a kid. And I have to be perfectly frank with you, um, the way I imagined Cork as a kid was kind of the way I was as a kid. Okay. There's a lot about Cork at 12 years of age that was just like I was at 12 years of age. Cork was a Boy Scout. Um, I was a Boy Scout. Uh, Cork at, uh, at that age has a couple of, he has, I think, three paper routes. Mm. I had three paper <laughs> routes. Um, so, yeah, it, it was easy for me to tap into what I remember as an adolescent male, and, uh, and give Cork a lot of that background. The other thing that you were doing all along as you developed Cork as a character, I would think, is imbuing him with certain qualities, characteristics, that, that you were going to live with through the long haul, right? I mean, this is not you knew... <laughs> This is not a character at some point you knew. This is a character that you were gonna, you and we, the readers, were going to live with for a while. So I'm curious about how you thought about the characters, that, the characteristics that you would imbue his personality with and how they would evolve over the long, the long term. Oh, you credit me with a great deal more vision than I actually had. When I was writing the first book in the Cork O'Connor series, Iron Lake, I just wanted to write a manuscript that was good enough somebody might actually want to publish it. And I wasn't thinking much beyond that. Um, But as I was creating the Cork O'Connor character, I was making choices about who he was. Not necessarily who he was going to be through 18 novels, but who he was for that particular work. And... uh, So I made him a lot like me. Um... (laughs) So Cork, Cork's a family man. I'm a family man. Um, I gave Cork a lot of the uh, the moral compass that I have. Mm-hmm. Cork is a man who believes that um, that you make commitments in this life, and come hell or high water, you stand by those commitments. And I believe that Cork believes that one of the reasons we're put on this earth is to seek justice for others. I believe that Cork believes that in this life. Family is probably the most significant relationship any of us are ever going to know. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I believe as well. So creating Cork out of a lot of my own perceptions was not a difficult thing to do. 
I'm not native to Minnesota. I didn't move here until I was about 30 years old, mm -hmm. so my wife could go to the U of M Law School. And uh, before that, I was a gypsy kid. I lived all over the place. I never had anywhere that I really thought of or called home. Uh, but I swear to God, the minute I set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I fell in love with this place. So I always knew when I got serious about my writing, uh, whatever I did was going to be kind of a homage to, to Minnesota, to this adopted home. And uh, shortly after we moved here, uh, we began doing what everybody in the Twin Cities does in the summer. We started vacationing up north. So uh, we began spending uh, part of every summer at a YMCA camp north of Ely, a place called Camp de Nord. How many are you? Yeah, Camp de Nord. Which is, for those of you who don't know it, it's literally across the road from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And when I discovered that remarkable territory, I knew this is what I want to write about. When I took a really good look at northern Minnesota, it, I realized you can't write a story set in northern Minnesota without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's powerful. So I decided I was going to include um, the Ojibwe culture as one of the things that I would write about. Now, fiction writing 101. Mm -hmm. When you're a fiction writer, what are you looking for? You're looking for conflict, mm -hmm. because it's conflict that drives great stories. And when I looked up north, that's what I saw was conflict. Conflict in the, in the weather, conflict in that rugged landscape, conflict in the cultures that are trying to live up there together, and often not doing a particularly good job of it. But when I thought about the issue of conflict more specifically, I thought, what if I created a character who, in who he was, could mirror the conflict of, of those two cultures, White and Ojibwe? And that's when I decided to make Cork um, a part Ojibwe. What did I know about the, the culture of the Anishinaabeg? Nothing, which is what most white people know, right? Um, but I was a cultural anthropology major in college, and so the idea of learning about this culture, not my own, was exciting. And so I began, began in the way every good academic begins. I began by reading. I read everything I could get my hands on. In the course of my research, I began to uh, meet and form relationships with folks inside the Ojibwe community, uh, relationships that have become important friendships to me over the years. And, uh, and so the Cork naturally evolved out of all of that. So a lot of questions come to mind about what you've just said. Let me go back to what you said about imbuing Cork with the moral compass that you identify with. I feel like one of the tensions, one of the conflicts in his character, and we see it really clearly in what's happening with his father in this novel and what he's witnessing, is this idea of what it means to hold your integrity as a high value and what happens when people don't perceive you that way or question your integrity. I mean, this is happening to Liam, Cork's father in the novel. And Cork is seeing what, and will experience this, seeing what that means to a person to have your integrity questioned. Uh, that was not, I feel like we are seeing the making of that experience in Cork that's going to become very important for, for his life. W will you reflect on that for a minute? Sure. Enlightening, for those of you who don't know anything about my Cork O'Connor series, <laughs> um, Cork is actually uh, one quarter Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, 
and three-quarters Irish. So he doesn't, in my own, I, I never describe Cork because my own belief is readers need to be able to see Cork in a way that works for them. Um, but I see him resembling more his Irish heritage than his Ojibwe heritage. Mm-hmm. And so he is a kid who is growing up in his own perception one way. And then in lightning strike, he begins to become aware that the rest of Tamarack County, Aurora, Minnesota, think of him in another way. Mm-hmm. And what they see in him is the Ojibwe blood. And so he becomes aware, he becomes aware that uh, a lot of the, um, the unfortunate uh, names that we put on Native Americans are being applied to him as well. And he becomes aware that it's not just him, but it's his father, and it's his mother, and it's his grandmother. And so suddenly he is thrust into this world that now is beginning to make less and less sense to him, and he's having to figure out, okay, what's this world really like, and who am I in this world? Which is part of this story, but isn't that part of everybody's story, right? right? right. He's seeing as a child what it means to have a beloved parent, his father, his motives, again, his integrity, his own moral compass question. That is a formative experience for a child, isn't it? Yes. Say more. (laughs) So, when I was, the summer I was 13 years old, um, very formative summer for me, my father got fired from his job. He He had started out his career as an English, high school English teacher in Wyoming, Um, But once he'd had three children, he realized they weren't paying teachers enough, English teachers at any rate, enough to raise a family. So he left teaching and he joined the oil business, which is why I moved around a whole lot as a kid. When I was 13 years old, my father was head of the uh, what would, would be human relations division of a large chemical plant in Ohio. And... um, And I knew that it was putting a great deal of pressure on his his belief system because he would be on one side of a negotiating table for the company dealing with all of the workers, the people who represented the workers. And his heart was with the workers. He hired the first black engineer that had ever been hired in that chemical company and he took an enormous amount of flack for it. And finally they fired him because it was clear that his belief system was not theirs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember feeling at first, oh, Dad, oh, that's so horrible. That's, you got fired. And then as I began to understand it more, it was like, oh, Dad... I'm really glad that happened. You stood up for what you believed in. And then he went back to teaching, which is what he really loved. So there's a moral there for you. (laughs) 
William Ken Kruger on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater for Talking Volume. Steph Curtis with me Hello. in the studio today. You know, Steph, listening back to that, I, I was remembering that, you know, um, Kent is a kind of taciturn sort of guy, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he doesn't just kind of burble over with a bunch of stuff that you didn't ask about. You have to ask just the right question. <laughs> but if you do, the door opens and he tells you more, which is what I love about these moments uh, on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater for Talking Volumes. And I will say, for everyone listening today, your gifts, your contributions go to all of the events that Minnesota Public Radio does, including Talking Volumes. So thank you for that. First day of the member drive, Steph Curtis and I hanging out and asking you to make a commitment to Minnesota Public Radio. Steph, dare I ask where we are on this quest for 750 new and renewing members? We are good. 234 members so far. So that's 20 people who've become members or renewed their membership since uh, we started talking to you Mm -hmm. about it, which is Mm -hmm. great. But we need that number to keep on going. So how how about you? You know, there's something that Kent said when he said when he moved to Minnesota, he felt like he'd found home. And mm. he was talking about an homage to Minnesota. So I was going to ask you listener out there, join us at NPR News as an homage to the great radio that you hear, the eye-opening, mm-hmm. converse, um, eye-opening conversations you have, the moments that you tell your family about, the moments that stick with you, that make you laugh or, you know, just for those times when you have a connection, when you're listening to this, you feel more connected to Minnesota and the community because of what you're hearing on the radio. Become a member right now. How about $5 a month at mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Hey, have we mentioned the partnership that Minnesota Public Radio has with the DNR's Future Forest? Uh, Stephanie just mentioned $5 a month. That will plant five trees, $10 a month, 10 trees. We are greening Minnesota together, and we're investing in the future of forests and the future of Minnesota Public Radio. That's how this partnership works. That's how this relationship between public radio and members has worked for more than 50 years, and you are a key part of it. Whether you are listening on the radio, showing up at Talking Volumes, coming to other events, logging online, you're a key part of what we do including every now and then we come to you and say, could you make a financial commitment as well? 800-227-2811, online at mprnews.org. We have a goal. We're determined to make it, and you're a key part of it. How about $90? And that might sound like a weird, like, why $90? Stuff? What are I'm you talking the about? Yeah, that is about a quarter a day. So if every day mm. when you wake up, you... Kathy Werzer and Morning Edition wouldn't start unless you put a quarter in. Or (laughs) during your lunch hour, you couldn't hear Minnesota Now. On Fridays, you couldn't hear Carrie Miller and Big Books and Bold Ideas without putting a quarter in the radio. That would be $90 (laughs) a day. And uh, 90, 25 cents a day, $90 a year. You can join at mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. We're going to be going back soon to another Talking Volumes on, mm-hmm. that we recorded. But Carrie, I want to, um, for people who are listening to this, thinking, oh my gosh, I would love to go to a Talking Volumes. What do you have coming up? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Steph. We've got Celeste Eng. Mm. Her book, her new book, was just chosen by the Reese Book Club. You know Ooh, what a big yeah. deal that is. That is. And Danny Shapiro, oh my gosh. I, I just have to say, Steph, a meeting of the minds when I get in the same space as Danny Shapiro. She's fascinating. She has this huge podcast about uh, family secrets. She wrote a memoir about discovering who her father was. She is exceptional. And we're doing this on a Friday night. So it is a great date night at the very end of October on that Friday. I'd love to see you there for Talking Volumes. Meanwhile, make a contribution to Minnesota Public Radio, 800-227-2811. And let me remind you, we're trying to reach 750 people. That can be new members, renewing members, an additional contribution. We'd love to have you be one of those 750. We've heard from 239 people. You won't be alone. Go to mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. My name is Bob. I'm from Richfield. I've been an NPR listener ever since I got out of college. That was in the 70s. And uh, I really got hooked into the long-form reporting of NPR. Uh, It's always the first button I push when I get in the car. If you're a listener who has not yet joined, take a look at what you've gained from listening to NPR over the years. And just what would you do without it in your life? Join me and become a member at nprnews.org or call 800-227-2811. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special Membership Drive episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. Now, we couldn't talk about Minnesota Writers at the Fitz without bringing you an excerpt of the wonderful, rollicking show with Kate DiCamillo in 2021. We laughed. We nearly cried. It was a one-of-a-kind, terrific conversation. Take this bit where I asked if she intentionally returns to the theme of unexpected friends in her writing. Well, you know, I've said this a lot, and you probably in doing your research have come across me saying this because Ah. I know you've done your research um, because I looked at your notes. Um, (laughs) I um, knew it. That I, I, I don't know what I'm doing I do I write behind my own back so I'm not even looking at some, I don't think oh this interests me this theme okay I there's um uh when uh but my very first book was published um because of Winn-Dixie and I I name dropper <laughs> <laughs> and I I uh I was working at a bookstore at the time, and, you know, let's, I mean, this is a long time ago, and um, you could do school visits where they paid you to come into the school and talk about the book that you had written. Really? Yes. It was just, like, amazing to me. So I got signed up to do the very first one of those, and I was just, like, thrilled because I was going to make in one school visit what I made in a week at the bookstore. (laughs) And I was like, oh, boy. And so I go into a fifth-grade classroom, and I stand up in front of the class with the teacher, and she says to these kids, here's the person who wrote the book, and now what we're going to do is talk about the themes in the book. And... um, I felt a bead of sweat move down um, this. It's like, I'm not going to get this $250 um, because I don't know. It was about the money. I don't know what the themes are in the book. I have zero idea. And, And so mercifully, this wonderful teacher and these fifth graders 
they work together to to put the themes up on on the board and i'm like oh that seems right is this all really true it is true and then when i got out to my car i wrote down the themes (laughs) so that i like the next school visit i'm like let's talk about the themes that are in this this book but I mean, but it, all of which is to say, yes, I can see after the fact that I am interested in unexpected alliances right. and people who that you, you would, uh, that has been there from the very beginning. Yes. Um, and when those fifth graders told me the themes of Because of Winn-Dixie, mm-hmm. friendship was the first thing that came up there. Right. And, and it's friendship between Opal and uh, somebody who's been in jail uh, for, you know, so it's just those are, it, it happens again and again and again. There's a monk and a girl and a goat. A and demon goat. A demon goat. An unexpected alliance. An unexpected we'll alliance. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But were you somebody who as a kid made friends easily? I, I've always thought that was my uh, one true skill was really? to be able to make friends. Yeah. So, you know, when I think of a skill, I think of it as something that one develops. Okay. Um, was it a... <laughs> uh, was it a... I thought you were going to say superpower oh, or something. Oh, it, 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 you mean, was I a calculating child yes. who went around trying That's to... What I working meant. people over. No, I just... I feel like... Um, <laughs> working people <laughs> I I feel like I just... It, you know, I came from... This is, you know... I, I came from a single parent home and um and i found my way in the world because of all the people who opened their doors to me um and i i grew up in a small town in central florida and uh i was back there in 2016 for ramey nightingale at the library uh, of in the town where i grew up and it this whole thing was delivered to me as everybody came through the line all these people that i'd known when i was a kid that the town raised me Um, and and so and that I'm just so aware of how people opened their hearts and their doors to me and fed me I'm really fond of being fed Um, so yeah how much did the how how much did your friends and the people in your community know about your father having left the fact that you know, you were, it was your mother and you and your brother, right? Right. I mean, was that something that you felt like you had to cover up in some ways or you were compensating for that or? Um, I, you know, it was a different time um, and, and it was a small town and uh, there was nobody else who uh, came from a single parent uh home and among my friends and also nobody who was divorced so yeah I felt it keenly but um I also I remember I mean you couldn't hide it he wasn't there right um and uh I remember uh for a while because it was there was always this illusion that he was going to come back it was an illusion that he fed us and that um and that my mother believed in for a while. And I remember saying to Ida Bell Collins, who was the neighbor at the top of the street who knew everything that was going on, she said, oh, when is your father coming? And I said, soon. And I, I remember thinking, not true at all. I know what's going on, and he's not coming back, which is when I 
you know, thought, if I had long blonde hair, I bet you I could get him to come back. And so then I entered into a battle with my mother to grow my hair long. She's like, you look stupid with your hair long. Um, your, your face is too small. And, and then it was always just her trying to, like, you know, we weren't good at styling hair in my family. So that was a lot of, yeah. <laughs> One of those superpowers you did yeah, that, not yeah, yeah, possess. Did not get, yeah. It's so interesting, though, to hear you say you knew even as you were. Kids always know. Fibbing. Yeah, kids know. That it was it, a fib. It's, it, it, let, me, let me lead you into this, this very thing that um, I, I, get, it, it, I get this question a lot. Um, why, is, why do so many bad things happen in your books? Um, oh, people ask you that? Yeah, because, you know, they're books for kids. And it's just, kids are the ones that, you know, kids when they um, pretend like their father is coming back, they're doing it for the adults. Mm-hmm. Kids know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it has come up when you've been talking to kids, hasn't it? Sure, yeah. Kids, and, and you know, I, it's part of when I, you know, I had a PowerPoint um, because after a while they told me I had to have a PowerPoint, so I had one. And, um, and I thought, I'm, again, it's that thing where I'm not going to stand up there and tell them um, that this thing didn't happen. Right. I'm just going to... And, and kids... Uh, sometimes it was electrifying with them. They would get it. They would put it together themselves. Because I would, I would talk about how sick I, I was. Sick a lot as a kid. Are you going to make notes about that? Uh huh. Um, and and I would sick t- I- as a child. <laughs> Next session. <laughs> I would, I would, I would tell them about all the different diseases I ha- had, and none of which they even know anymore. It's like I had chickenpox and dead silence, and and I had measles three times. They don't even know what measles are anymore. So, but and they, you could feel them putting it together. Of like, wait a minute, this is where the stories come from, um, wow. because and, and they and they would say that to me afterwards and they would want to talk to about their missing parents afterwards it's like that's one of the things that i really miss is that chance to do a one-on-one with a kid that needs to be seen that way and for me to tell them you'll be fine um i i read an exchange that you had with matt de la pena in time magazine who i've interviewed a few times isn't he a delight he is something yeah yeah he's he's wonderful and he asked you a question about how honest a writer can be to kids about the hard things of life. And you told this incredibly poignant story of being in South Dakota. Would you talk about that? Um, it was in South Dakota. It was 900 kids in an auditorium. And it doesn't happen all the time, that, but you could feel like these kids, 900 of them, they were so present, and they got it, and um, and they got this thing about like these these things that seem bad actually give you something. And also, I'm standing up here and talking to you about these bad things that happened, and telling you that you can be okay. Uh, it was just a, a fabulous group of kids, and I stood um, and uh, at the end of the show and like just talked to them as they exited. They had to get on school buses, and one little boy grabbed my hand. I can't do it. You can. <laughs> um, and said, I'm here, 
and uh, my my father is in uh, California, and I didn't I don't know if I'm ever going to see him a- again. But you said that you're okay, so I know I'm going to be okay. And that that that's what a book can do, though. That's let let me get back on so track because you're very pleased with yourself <laughs> because. <laughs> And I don't like that, Carrie. <laughs> who's got the, she did it to me. She oh did it gosh. to me. She's got the upper hand. You're the first person who's ever <laughs> nailed me on that. <laughs> no, but, don't get back on track too fast. But, but you know, it, it's funny because um, th- this is another moment I think that I can talk about without crying. Um, but I, I'm uh, friends with... Uh, somebody who sat on the stage, Ann Patchett. Mm -hmm. And um, I was at her bookstore not that long ago, and she wanted me to talk to one of her booksellers who had read Despero when he was a kid. And uh, he was the most lovely human being. And he told me that that book saved his life. And then he went on to say, and I'm standing here getting to say this to you now, but I can guarantee you that there are kids all over the world who have read that book and felt seen, and it saved their lives. And so it doesn't matter whether or not we get to say it. It's happening. And that is the miracle of books. The incomparable Kate DiCamillo (laughs) on the stage. I know. Isn't she great, Steph? She's fantastic. Carrie Miller here, Steph Curtis with us. We have brought you three different excerpts of Minnesota writers on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. And we did this because we're right in the middle of our latest Talking Volume series. Tickets are on sale. Celeste Eng, Danny Shapiro, which is going to be a fabulous show, both of those. And then Ross Gay is our season finale. Just one of the things that Minnesota Public Radio does to invest your gifts and your contribution as a member. We are on the very first day of the drive. Steph Curtis, somewhere around 500 new and renewing members. Is that right to go for the day? That is correct. I have it written down in front of me. I did the math. 506 (laughs) to go. We're hoping to hear from 750 people today. We've been doing great. Um, Other people out there have been calling in, uh, going to nprnews.org and becoming a member. We're hoping that you will join them. Maybe you're a big book fan. Maybe you're a Talking Volumes fan, a Carrie Miller fan, just an NPR listener, who an NPR News listener who enjoys like turning on the radio, um, mm-hmm. downloading the app and starting it going and whatever's on. You're like, hey, this is interesting. I don't know what I'm going to get, but I know it will be smart. It'll be thoughtful. It'll be enlightening. That is made possible by other people who are members just like you. Join them. Go to nprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Stephanie's a big reader. I'm a big reader. But I'm going to say that the conversations that I have with authors, whether it's on the stage of the Fitz or in conversation for my book show, they are, yes, they're conversations with writers Mm -hmm. and they're about reading, but they're really about what it means to be in this world, what it means to live a life, what it means to be in a marriage, what it means to be a parent. I mean, we cover the gamut of human experience. And that's what books do, right? Whether it's nonfiction or fiction. That's why I love being in this space. I'm appreciative that people are interested in reading and writing. 
and appreciative that you step up and you listen and you make a contribution to Minnesota Public Radio because, as Steph says, you don't know exactly what you're going to get, but you know it's going to be insightful and smart. We promise you that. Isn't that worth a contribution today? I hope it is. 800-227-2811, mprnews.org. Steph, I want to say something here that when we come up with these goals, like 750 new members or renewing members or gifts on the first day of the drive, um, this is kind of calculated, but it's also Mm -hmm. with an awareness that there are a lot of people who listen and they haven't just made it yet to be a member. Our plea to you today is if you've listened for a long time, please be a member. Right, Steph? We know you're out there. We know you're out there. And there's just something where you hear it enough or you really, or or it's just the right time for you. You right. um, got a new job. You're feeling uh, uh, stable or, you know, you've just been listening in a new way and you realize I, if this weren't here when I wake up in the morning, if this weren't here during my lunch break, when I when I want to just take a break from work and put on mm-hmm. some headphones and walk around and find out what's happening outside my my work my work life, if mm-hmm. there's just some change where you think I'm going to become a member right now, just get it done right now. Go to um, mprnews.org or you can call one eight hundred two two seven twenty eight eleven. How about ten dollars a month or fifteen dollars a month? It may not seem like a lot, or it may, may for some people it seems like a lot, but other people are like well, that doesn't make much difference. But really, it is. You joining the other, like today, 749 people out there across Minnesota becoming members, that that is the largest source of income for NPR News. We really need you. mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Stephanie and I are really aware that it is a chaotic kind of news environment. There's mm-hmm. so much information coming at you. I mean, and, and you're trying to see your way through to see the stuff that matters. Well, NPR News does a great job of that. I mean, news that matters, information you need, context you really couldn't live without, depth that tells you why the news is happening and why you should care about the events. Now, there's a lot of places to get news and information. There are new organizations popping up every day. NPR News is tested and experienced, and you can count on us. And every now and then, we ask to count on you. We ask that if you listen, you step up and you be a member, and you decide what's right for you, but that you make a level of commitment that fits with your life and your budget. NPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. I'm going to say one other thing here, Steph, since we're in the middle of talking volumes. I'd love to see you in the audience. I'd love to meet you. I'd like to roam through the audience and say hello to people. And now that we've dropped some of the masking, I can do that again. I'd love to see you in the audience at Minnesota Public Radio and at Talking Volumes. So make a commitment, support what we're doing here at NPR News, and uh, call 800-227-2811, mprnews.org. How about now? And before we go, I want to make sure uh, that you have an idea. Like, how about $10 a month, $120 a year? And we've got this great bundle. It's the NPR News tote bag and an NPR deck of cards, which is wow. really cool. So go I to NPR. Heard about this. Yeah, it's brand new. Go to NPRnews.org or call 1 800 227 2811.